<laughs> oh wait, I oh, I have to rotate. I actually have things written right here that go right along with that concept. Okay, we have to get a little closer now. Oh my gosh! I'm so excited. I'm here with Steven Johnson. We're oh, in real life oh, together. <laughs> Steven is so cool. Steven is one of my mentors in my Soma bodywork practice. I think we need to um, maybe back up so we aren't like okay. so. There we go. Okay. So, um, first off, welcome to Find Your Line of Grace podcast episode three. We're at episode three already. It's still going. I'm Elizabeth Rapp, and together we learn about all of the magnificent ways that different people find the multitude line of lines of grace that exist in this world. Um, you're going to learn some pretty fun ones today with this bill, I promise you. So this can range from alignment in yoga to conversations around anatomy to a line that you ski down a mountain with, but none of these are separate from another. We're all interwoven. Um, so this is brought to you in part by my yoga embodiment coaching certification program. It's a 12 week course to support body workers and yoga teachers and coaches to help evolve and uplift their clients and help to boost their own incomes through that as well. So you can go to Yoga Embodiment Coaching to learn more about that. But now I want to introduce you to Steven Johnson. Okay, here's what I know about Steven. So Steven's a brilliant fellow, 100%. He's a former anatomy teacher at the Soma Institute where I did my training in structural integration body work. But sadly, he had already left. So we didn't get to meet until after that. Um, he's a former psychiatric nurse and researcher. This might be one of the reasons he likes hanging around me. I'm an interesting case. <laughs> Maybe we should not go too much into that. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's a total Diagnostically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> he's a total fascial geek. He's a consciousness researcher. He's a flow expert and so much more. So here we are today, Stephen Johnson. What would you like to add to that? Introduction, aside from the fact that you're ephemeral and just on your way out. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm on my don't, they, don't send me out too soon. Oh. I still have a few years left, I think. Oh, I hope, <laughs> I hope several hands. Actually, you pretty much got it covered. Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to, as a, to move away from me to accentuate my ephemerality, uh, I did want to say that when I was, when you asked me to do this, I was kind of contemplating lines of grace. So... In the past, I've spent many, many hours uh, reading and researching uh, a lot of, I mean, my whole life has been about reading philosophy and thinking philosophically, poetically, and, and it was, so I was thinking of lines, and I was, at the time, I'm doing a lot of research into neuroshamanism and the origins of religions and comparative religions and always researching science, particularly neuroscience and fascial science. And I was thinking, oh, lines. So let's break this down. Lines of grace. So for many, many years, I've thought about how to create a philosophy of lines, of the line. Lines of flight, lines of consistency, you know, lines of inquiry. And of course, lines uh, connect us all. We're all connected via different kinds of lines. When you're looking at even something as esoteric as the astral body, there are multiple lines connecting, right? So I thought, well, interesting. So lines, fascial lines, I've 
taught Fascia for decades and have researched Fascia continuing, continuing on, and of course the classic line, the fascial line of the body. And then I started thinking, so grace, huh? Interesting concept, difficult concept to put into words. So what I came up with in terms of lines of grace, the grace part, that grace, an aspect of grace, would be how we move simply and flowingly towards opening, mm. towards feeling, which is an opening, physiologically and psychologically speaking, towards creativity. So lines of grace, how do we negotiate our way to a state of grace in which we're moving more simply, more flowingly into opening? So thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> thank you. These already started. So good. Yeah, yeah. So um, let me tell you where I came up with that idea, lines of grace. So was right after I graduated the Institute and I was getting my um, like business cards ready, right? And I wanted to have a tagline as many people do that depicts sort of what the nature of their, their business is. And I was playing with all these different concepts and I, um, as a movement teacher, I felt like there was something related to movement that I wanted to have in there and I couldn't quite land on it. And I had an amaryllis. And the amaryllis, if you've ever seen an amaryllis, it's just shot like so straight and pure. That stalk was just like in so much integrity. It was unbelievable. And then at the top, it's like this, mm -hmm. like this mm -hmm. real kind of, um, I don't want to say a chaotic flower, but an uh, a interesting. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, moving parts to it visually. And the way that that flower head was able just to connect into the earth inspired me. I was like, oh, there's this line. Oh, it's this line of grace. It's this anchoring of all of this energy. And one of the things that comes through in yoga teachings, like related especially to the chakra system, of course, is where we have this um, connection to divine wisdom through our crown chakra. We bring it down through ideas and formulating ideas, giving voice to those ideas, and then moving that into our heart. But in our heart, it needs to meet with the energy of the earth, water, and fire, that transmutation. So it's this place of intersection within ourselves where we're both grounded, but we're also, also connected to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. divine source wisdom. So it's this line of grace. So I would, I think that's beautiful. And I would, uh, I would kind of, as an addendum, look at that as an activated core line. Mm -hmm. And if there's not an activated core line which grounds you or earths you, then that explosion of the blossom, which is your engagement with life, can't take place fully. Right. So, and that's what we're doing in structural integration. That's what you're doing, in essence, in yoga. That's what essentially our consciousness can be that flower that's coming from an activated core line, right. uh, which is grounded, which is earthed, which I think is interesting. So, yes, just another way of saying the same thing. Another way. Yeah. Why I like you. Very cool. So, um, Stephen. Yes. What are you researching these days? Oh, 
Lord, what am I researching these days? Uh, I have to get closer. <laughs> am I, we're moving out of the frame. <laughs> You're being ephemeral. <laughs> but there's no question. <laughs> the, uh, right now, I'm, I should probably, as part of a mini bio, uh, I'm very involved in the float industry, flotation tanks. Uh, Describe and, that more in case well, folks don't know. It's uh, flotation tanks, although tank may be a slight, a, you know, a slight misnomer in that uh, manufacturers are now making float cabins, float rooms, so it's not necessarily going into a tank. But the whole idea of a flotation tank is that you are in an environment uh, in which you're lying in 10 inches of essentially uh, body temperature water that has up to a thousand pounds of Epsom salt in it and the tank or some of some of the tanks are large uh, that you are there is no sound or hopefully no sound or very minimal no light and by laying in this solution uh, this Epsom salt solution which which you're floating you're actually floating you can't turn over because of the viscosity of the water that your kinetoreceptors and proprioceptors go quiescent and essentially you begin to lose your body. What, so what often happens is it, uh, in doing that, putting yourself in that sensorily deprived environment that as you begin to, as the brain waves begin to move out of beta, out of beta in through the alpha range and into the theta range, that you actually, the interoce your interoceptive processes begin to ascend, to arise. So you'll be very cognizant of your breath. You'll be very cognizant of your heartbeat. You'll be very cognizant of the movement of the fluids through your vessels. And then, and then you, it's very deep relaxation. There's been a lot of research into sports optimization, recovery from injuries or recovery from extreme activity. Uh, there's been a lot of research into the creative potential of it, particularly if you're coming into low alpha through the theta range. Uh, and the consciousness researcher and philosopher Evan Thompson, essentially, uh, he states that like there's a, there's a self, an aware self, aware awake self. There is a dream self, which is different than the aware self. But in the theta range, in the very low alpha theta range, there is no longer a self, there is only the witness of what is transpiring, what is mm -hmm. coming up from the interoception, meaning the interoception mind-wise as well. A lot of imagery, sometimes uh, abstract or representational or archetypal imagery is coming up and you'll be able to see it. You know, if, if I hallucinate in the float tank every single time. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, I always go in... Flashback or...? Well, <laughs> Flash forward, flash, flash back, forward. flash around. <laughs> uh, I always go in with the problematic, usually a philosophical or a question, an anatomical, energetic, philosophical question. Uh, I lose it rapidly since I'm a, essentially a lifetime meditator. Once I start the breath, I, I'm gone. It doesn't take me long to get very low mm -hmm. brainwave-wise. And... And I always can tell because when I'm laying there breathing and if I open my eyes and I can't tell if my eyes are open, I know I'm there. Mm. Uh, and then always that question that I go in with disappears. 
as the lights come up or the, or the music comes up, I get out and I go, well, I lost that. And then while I'm taking a shower, it always comes back. Likely the answer comes back in a way that I probably would not have been able to solve in my normal consensus state of consciousness. Mm. So to come back, to come back full circle, uh, I have I spoke at the first seven uh, float conferences that were held here in Portland, and three rise gatherings which were held in St. Louis. Uh, after the seventh one here, they went the float conference went nonprofit, and they started moving around the country. So I became the MC in giving opening and closing remarks. The first one was in Denver. The second one was obviously COVID, so it was uh, virtual. The next one was in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the upcoming one is in Portland, Maine. Ooh. So, long-windedly, to come back to your question, I am researching and writing my opening and closing remarks in relation to the flow conference. And uh, I'm always, researching origins of religions, comparative religions, uh, new, new uh, studies in neurological studies, studies in mental health and mental illness, particularly psychedelics, the use of psychedelics now in mental health and mental illness, which are game-changing. I have uh, very close friends who are researchers in the float world, but they're MD, PhDs, they're, you know, they're uh, PhD, uh, you know, uh, cognitive psychologists, or, and they're researching uh, the float, the float uh, practice, the float event, the float practice in terms of anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, eating disorders. And the research is off the charts positive. It's yeah. relatively new, but it's looking very good. Now, to me, my, to put a, a kind of a title on the plethora of research that I'm always doing just because of interest is I'm really studying the exploration and the enhancement of consciousness via the practices of meditation, flotation, and nature immersion. Because mm. I think all three of those, plus of course many others, are wisdom practices. And wisdom practices are about opening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really vital right now, and you were talking about the culture, uh, you know, part of it would be how to dilate the reducing valve of consciousness, of our consensus reality via our consciousness. And by dilating that reducing valve, which is what our consensus reality is in relation to consciousness, is how to open to something more. Mm -hmm. It's how to create a bridge between the scientific and the mystical or the spiritual. Mm -hmm. Because when you go back in time and you look at neurobiological shamanism, you look at origins of religions, axial age phenomenon, go on and on, before the development of science, really they're about the same thing. Different expressions of the same thing. So how to create a bridge in which those two are no longer battling each other. So like in the, the perfect example is the, the researchers in the flow, they're doing serious psychology, they're doing serious research, but it's based on 
what they felt in the float. It's like a lot of the meditation research. Right. The researchers are doing it because of what happens, the event of the meditation. Yeah. So I think that's what's really important. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm working with, along with uh, doing, continuing to do structural integration. Love it. How I'm re-perceiving the stroke dynamic in relation to depth, in relation to the fossil line. Uh, there's been a lot of past really interesting research uh, in terms of how our fascial system exits our body, mm. in a sense. Uh, in terms of the receptors on the skin surface, there was a Buddhist and a rolfer, a Will Johnson in Canada, who I did a workshop with, who dealt with the gaze, how our gaze or our intentful gaze actually could be looked at as an externalization of our fascial dynamics. Interesting stuff. There's oh, a lot of interesting stuff. So anyway, cool. anyway. So <laughs> Stephen, I I heard you say three things that I just want to like bring bring back into the forefront of awareness for folks here. So that was floating, nature immersion, and meditation. Right. As those three wisdom practices. So pretend I'm a busy mom that owns several businesses and I only have time for one of those things each day or even one of those things each week. Where would you steer someone? It would depend upon the conversation with the person themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if they're extremely busy, uh, it may be very difficult for them to do any kind of a classical sitting meditation. Uh, it may be better if they had the time to be able to just quietly walk through trees. Uh, the thing about flotation uh, is, it's uh, as opposed to the other two, it's relatively expensive. Mm -hmm. But if you have it, it's essentially a, a passive process. When I got really got in, started floating a lot, I mentioned to some of my meditation friends, some of which who are Buddhist monks and other people, Give it a try, and they said, "No, it's a, it's a, uh, we don't, they don't want to try it. It's a shortcut." So, mm -hmm. in other words, yeah. they were kind of stuck in their discipline a little bit. Yeah. And even the most mindful people can get stuck in their discipline oh, yeah. egoically. Yeah, yeah. And then when they finally did it, the ones that finally did it, they just kind of went, "Whoa!" Right. It was an, it was, it actually helped the process, but it's a passive process. All you do is lay there. Mm -hmm. And it happens to you almost. It's happening with you in partnership, but it's almost happening to you. You're putting yourself in an environment where everything slows down to the point where it does open. And that comes up to one of the things I'm dealing with a lot with the flotation and also in my meditation practice is the concept of consciousness, a heightened, a heightened or enhanced sense of consciousness, which is fluid in nature. So that fluidity is very important. So with this, your with your your person, I would have to look at her life. Uh, meditation is a wonderful thing. It takes a, a long time and a lot of practice to get to be really good at it, where you can really lower the brain waves to a point where you're really reaping the benefits. I mean, five minutes a day is good, mm -hmm. but in order to truly reap the benefits, it takes time. Getting out in nature is always good. You know, yeah. are you getting out in nature in a meditative way or in an athletic way makes a difference. Mm -hmm. 
uh, but getting in a float tank, you just lay there. Yeah. So I would say go float first. If you can walk through the forest to get to the float center, better yet. Love it. <laughs> so I want to weave in um, an, an idea that you just gave me with this last little bit of information. You were talking about a shortcut. And I think that there can be thoughts around how shortcuts are like a cheater's way to do something or achieve something like, oh, you took a shortcut. Yeah. You shortcut the trail, you shortcut this or that. And, you know, I, I think now about like how basically we're, we're living with the shortcuts that people, the generation before us figured out to make like, things simpler. Like my generation before yours. Thank you. <laughs> Thank I, you. I got it. I, I got get it. a ride on your shortcuts, <laughs> right? And I mean, I'm just tying this into, um, when I was in college, I was a pizza delivery driver and I never stopped at a stoplight because I didn't take the roads that had stoplights on them. I took all the shortcuts. I was like in the neighborhoods and the back alleyways and those um, kind of in our minds, right? The less traveled neuro grooves of a roadmap. And how, how can, how can, how, how do you think people can A, like give themselves permission maybe to take a shortcut or B, get out of, and there are kind of two sides of the same question here. Often we'll have a neural groove set and a neural groove is like a pathway, whether it's a movement pathway, an idea pathway, or part of our culture scape that has like set something into the way it should always be. But it's a conceptual thing. It's not like, oh, this is wood. It's always hard. This is water. It's always wet, right? It's this concept that we have just collectively decided it's the way it always needs to be. So we have this neural groove, this road, and periodically there are stoplights along the way. But if someone was to jump out of that well-worn groove and get in a back alleyway, using floating seems like it could be a really great tool for that. Let's look at floating not as the back alleyway, but the field. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> oh, this is why I love this guy. So... Beyond right doing and wrong doing, you know, where I'll meet you. <laughs> <laughs> shortcuts. Interesting. Short, that's an interesting concept in itself. Right. Uh, but shortcuts are like every other concept. You know, a concept only has veracity. If, unless there's, in philosophy, there are a lot, of a lot of philosophers who have said that philosophy really is the creation of concepts. But for a concept to have veracity, it has to have an endoconsistency, which means all the aspects of the concept have to have coherence. And it has to have an exoconsistency, which means that the concept has to connect with other concepts in a conceptual matrix. Now, those are lines. If you look at, totally. a, if you look at a cell, you know, as an example of a cell as a concept, it's all in, you know, all of the cytoskeleton, mm -hmm. which, and the transmembrane proteins in the cell wall, and that whole dynamic that gives the cell veracity. But it only has veracity unless it's connected with other cells in the tissue or the membrane or whatever. So right. a concept just takes that out in a greater uh, matrical sensibility. Mm -hmm. So the con let's come back, the concept of shortcuts.
Shortcuts probably sometimes are really good, particularly if you're saving time and you have to save time, but that reflects back to how nice it would be if you didn't have to save time. Mm. If you gave yourself time or didn't engage in that rush around having to save time. So that negates the concept right there. Totally. You know, and, and concepts are, uh, they can be shortcuts in which you're missing a lot of the field. You're missing the flowers of the field or you're missing the sky or you're missing, so henceforth, uh, to go into a nature immersion, uh, kind of an, uh, an, an example, uh, when you're in nature long enough, there are no shortcuts. Unless you're trying to time how fast you're going to climb the mountain, or how fast you're going to do the 10K or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty soon nature will, once you're walking, you will move into kind of a quasi-contemplative state in nature, unless you're rushing for a particular person purpose and nature will not allow you to miss it it will actually insist on you experiencing it which is one of the beauties of nature immersion wilderness nature immersion practices and that besides you're breathing in uh, terpenes and lemonines and pinenes and all these little yeah. chemicals just make you feel calm and open mm -hmm. so it's interesting yeah. yeah, and and you know, so good for your own immune system right. too. Of course, the absolutely. Immune system of the plant, you get I to think, take that in. I think all wisdom practices are are in part there's practices of the self. Some of those are wisdom practices, but regardless, they all help your immune system. Yeah. At one way or another, what doesn't help your immune system is using shortcuts to save a lot of time to see if you can get more stuff done. That might not help your... It might actually have so the my, opposite effect. My pizza delivery strategy was... <laughs> was fine. hot pizza. was fine because they had hot pizza and you didn't have to pay the penalty. Uh, right. But, so it certainly works. But once again, you mentioned, you know, it's, it's that sense of how to dilate uh, the reducing valve of consciousness, mm -hmm. which is, is, in essence, we have... I mean, it's really about... A large part of consciousness is about uh, create the creation of a consensus reality. Mm -hmm. So we all live in a, I mean, we all see, we all feel and see reality a little differently, but we live in a consensus reality. Or I mean, that's how cultures can be created. That's how communities and cultures can be created. Uh, and yet, with within that, then you look at the dilation aspect of that, and how, for instance wisdom practices or spiritual practices or what happens let's come back to structural integration when you touch another person let's use an example of structural integration with intent with a proper intent it's what you're doing essentially is you're creating the buddhist stream that flows in both directions mm -hmm. you're not just touching the other person you're touching yourself touching the other person and feeling the other person touching you so there, that's a communion process. So in that process itself, as you're moving slowly and intentfully and beginning to engage in the partnership, brain waves slow down, you know, uh, right hemispheric dominance begins to take over a little bit depending upon the nature. Structural integration sometimes has discomfort, but in the discomfort, you can explain what the discomfort is and the person will undergo the discomfort knowing that it's not going to last 
And it's just part of this process, which is really a wonderful opening process. Mm -hmm. You know, so anyway. So I think, I mean, there's something I was just talking to my students about in regards specifically to that, like the discomfort process and that oftentimes, um, you know, and, and this kind of goes back to how, how it's hard to see something that you don't already know exists. So if you don't know that there's actually a spectrum of sensation that exists, around pain nice point then right. you don't have a concept of that and all you perceive it as is pain, pain. unless you, it's just only pain unless you educate the person and so i see myself as right. someone who's in an opportunity right. to actually help give language and name these different experiences so that they all aren't just clustered in this one category and it's a perfect time to educate people to breath in relation to pain yeah you know teaching anatomy for all those years Pain deconstructs language. Mm -hmm. Pain deconstructs reality. Mm -hmm. And if it's bad enough, it is your whole reality. And you can't, you can tell people, you can explain that you're in pain, but you can't describe what pain feels like. Mm -hmm. It's something that's, it deconstructs language. So even in something not as severe as, you know, really severe pain, but looking at somebody like in structural integration, it's, you, when you start to work with breath, and it, it, all, it happens almost all the time, that you get to depth. I mean, what I taught in terms of the stroke dynamic, the artistry of the stroke dynamic, is that you get to depth slowly. When you get to a certain point where you feel resistance, mm -hmm. you just stop. You don't push any harder. You maintain your depth, but you don't push. The tissue will equilibrate to that, and will pull you deeper as it actually as they as their tissue pulls you deeper you'll get to a point where you will feel the opening in the tissue there goes your stroke regardless and then you come back out and mm -hmm. the breath in that is always on the exhale you can move further yeah. And then they inhale and the tissue comes back up against your <clears throat> pressure. And as they exhale, you can go until you reach a point, which is the end point. And you're sensitive to that. Uh, and then you withdraw and then you, you can see what happens in the tissue. Mm -hmm. I think that is a, that happens, I think we should look at that example in terms of life as well. Right. You know, right. You, you can go as deep, you can, like in research, you go as deep as you can until you just reach a wall of, your own, your own limitations, your own mm -hmm. intellectual or cognitive limitations. And then just be there for a while. Let it be. And then you'll go deeper. I want to add to that, though, too. That's where having a mentor, a coach, some supportive exactly. external witness exactly. is invaluable. So as the case that Stephen's giving right now that you're giving is, you know, you're the body worker. Like, you're that support. You're right. that orchestrator. And you're you know, supporting them in their response. And so in our research methods too, it's, it must be super helpful for you and you have someone that maybe you can bounce ideas off oh, of a little bit. There's and, no question. It's vitally yeah. important. It's vitally important. Kind of like being here with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but when you're saying that, I'm reflecting upon me working on you and you yelling about my bony fingers. <laughs> you bony old man. So hold on here. <laughs> Oh, that just needed to emote. <laughs>
Okay, emotion. I was having feelings. <laughs> what do you have written down? You know, I'm just looking at something up that I wrote down this morning. I, I mean, I'm always taking notes about stuff, and I was in relation to structural integration, in relation to floating, in relation to meditation, in relation to any, almost any wisdom practice or enhanced practice of the self, I would suggest some questions. Does, during this practice, does the little me become the big me? Mm. Does it enliven our inner nature, allow it to express itself in life ongoing? Interoception, exteriorizing. Does it enhance psychological, physiological integration and functioning? Does it liberate our natural tendencies for compassion, enhanced awareness, and performance? Does it make us smile? Does it make us feel? Very sweet. And then if you're answering on the affirmative side of those, then you have a sense that something's working for you. That's right. You, you're, yeah. you're essentially in a highly functional, compassionate practice of the self or wisdom practice or whatever, however you want to term it. It doesn't have to be a wisdom practice. Mm -hmm. Wisdom tends to uh, mistakenly relate to age and experience, which of course is part of it. And it also also can kind of, it can sway people too, too far towards the religious. Uh, although, you know, in the origins of religions, uh, and, in, and when you begin to dig down beneath the dogmas and the other aspects, you know, the domineering meta, you know, meta-narratives of religion, you get to these universalities, which mm -hmm. it's, the, you know, the flow tank, the meditation mat, the yoga class, the structural integration table, they're all the same. They're all the same. You know, and what they're doing is creating lines mm -hmm. of interconnectivity. Yeah. And and it's been beaten into the ground endlessly, but duh, we're interconnected. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Totally. And people don't often get the the amazing gift of experiencing that because they're, you know, afraid of the dogma. Or right. yeah, and they've it, been wronged or hurt. Pain is too much. Yeah, yeah. it's a you know we're we're living in a contracted period of time. You think? And what <laughs> what usually follows a contracted period of time is that opening again. Mm -hmm. You know, the very first thing I would say to my anatomy classes uh, was, people, the deeper you go into the human body, the more it opens. Yeah. And later I would always say, you know, there's an interesting question. Could it be possible that we have a body because that's the way that spirit can manifest itself in physical reality, which is also about us as a vehicle. Because maybe, at, maybe our highest calling is to be a vehicle, you know, for information, for compassion, for love, for whatever expertise we have in order to help in order to help the opening process. So I borrowed a um, concept from Joanne Alverson. I have her book over there. She wrote a yoga anatomy, fascia and movement. And um, she, she says, uh, water 
invented the human body so it could walk around. I, I, I've heard that before <laughs> right? and I like it. Yeah. So water invented the human body so it could walk around. Right, great. So water also, in all of the studies done like in the 90s and 2000s, having response, having the, the ability to change the crystalline form of water with different kinds of prayers, words, living matrix theory, living matrix theory right? Yep, or also the thoughts of disharmony, self-hate, hatred right. for other. So changing the actual shapes of the cells, right? And given the nature of spirit, right? This concept that we're talking about of how spirit, you just said of spirit made the human body so it could walk around. And that water is part of the manifestation of the crystalline energy of right. spirit in mm -hmm. human form. Right. And there's a good friend of mine that wrote a book Which called... Which water is the main element right. of Basha, by the way, people? Yes, yes. Uh, ground substance. <laughs> and a friend of mine wrote a book called Blue Mind. Okay. Wallace J. Nichols. And he collated uh, studies from all over the world. Uh, which show, and this is what the book's about, he created this concept of blue mind as in, in relation to red mind, which is taking too many shortcuts. I'm just kidding. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, red mind as the driven type A type mind, yeah. and gray mind as a depressive mind. But blue mind is that it, what he showed through the coalition of all these studies, many, many studies, that being on, in, or near water is the single most relaxing thing for the human organism. Even to the point of pictures of water or even the color blue in some instances. Mm. So it's fascinating. And of course in Living Matrix, it's, you know, we're, if, if, if you follow that, that theory, that, and then it, what it shows is that we are a liquid crystal and it has to do with the water molecules associated with the proteins in the body, which allow that liquid crystallinity. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I know I definitely feel it. Like when I, like just yesterday, having a lot of big feelings, I went to the water. And it's big time. Big time. You know, in, in my research and speaking in consciousness, I've tried to look at what happens in a deep meditative state or the float state or in the na natural state. And, you know, there's all these examples of, you know, of meditation and, you know, the underlying reality, the greater reality, which is the underlying reality, the example of the still pond and the forest and all of these different examples. But what I talk about in the float conferences a lot and talk to people about is I have this sense that what happens is that as the brain waves slow down, as you move through the alpha into the theta and back into alpha, back and forth, because those are the slower, more stable kind of, uh, you know, uh, electrochemical impulses. They're not jagged, and they, they tend to kind of create kind of a grounding, mm -hmm. you know, and what that allows for is that in meditation or in flotation, when you get to those low alpha, those low steady, you know, low alpha theta waves, that allows for this peak to the gamma. And the gamma is the highest hertz of the brain waves, which is about creativity. Like you and I speaking right now, we're, we're in gamma because we're having a great time. Big time gamma. <laughs> Big time. But that gamma can come from that more stable low alpha theta than it can from anything else. 
So that high creativity is activated by lowering the brain, you know, lowering mm -hmm. the brain waves. Uh, and I tend to talk about how in that state, your consciousness becomes, I talk about it, becoming more fluid. Uh, another way to look at it is it's a de-defined or de-differentiated state, which means everything is in a fluid form. And if you're immersed or suspended in this fluid form of consciousness, which doesn't, which is not manifesting as a definition that this is this, it's the warp of consciousness as opposed to the phase, that you can actually reconceive, you can actually redefine from an undefined fluid state. So there's a huge therapeutic potential there if guided. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really fascinating. Uh, and then, you know, you can look at that in terms of the quantum dynamics, that there's research now by the fabulous uh, systems, systems theorist and quantum biologist, Stuart Kaufman, that he's looking at how the quantum wave state, and actually we may be walking wave functions. We're just nothing but potentialities all the time. That's, well, what, yeah. a, that's what a walking wave function would okay, be. Okay, right. But, he, but you know, in, in physics, to be very, very simplistic, that the wave function decoheres to the particle state. The wave state decoheres to the particle state when measured, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's what we know, the double slit experiment. You know, that when measured, the wave state decoheres to a particle state. The particle state could be equated with classical reality. Particles. Wood is hard. Water is wet. Right. Phenomenological phenomenon, you know. And Stuart Kaufman is thinking maybe, and he's doing research in this, and he's a brilliant guy, maybe it's our awareness that is the measuring device that decoheres the quantum wave state to the particle state, which is classical reality. That maybe it's us, mm. our deep awareness of something that, and what did the Buddha say? Mind creates reality. Right. So it's like, this is really getting interesting. And, you know, there's another fascinating uh, study that was done by Stuart Hammerhoff and Roger Penrose. Stuart Hammerhoff was an anesthesiologist, and, and Roger Penrose is a famous uh, physicist from the UK. And 25 years ago or so, they, create, they started working on this theory called Orchestrated Objective Reduction, ORC-OR. Their theory, uh, Stuart wanted to find out what happened when, you know, in anesthesiology, when somebody went under, they lost consciousness. Uh, and what they came up with, which is a fascinating concept, and it's actually it kind of went underground for a few years, but it's back big time, is that the microtubules, which are part of the cytoskeleton, or all of our cells, it's the transportation system inside the cell. You've probably seen the videos of the integrins, not the integrins, the, uh, I can't remember, the little motor, the kinesins, the little mm -hmm. motor proteins carrying the, you know, the neurotransmitters down, you know, walking along the microtubules to the axon terminal where they release it, where then it's released into the synapse, the whole, you know, the whole, synaptical reality, but they vibrate. The microtubules vibrate and they denature and renature and they come up in different places. And they're, they're, the theory is that that vibration creates a quantum effect in the neurons of the brain.
mm. which means, which could be extrapolated to mean that maybe the brain is a quantum computer. And through awareness, then that circles back into Stuart's work that is our awareness of something the creation of our reality. Yeah. We are all potentialities. We're so all potentialities. Any, any practice we begin to look at, practice of the self, wisdom practice, whatever, uh, what, that increases our awareness uh, is the recreation of our realities. Yeah. I think, I, I actually just wrote a, a post about this not too long ago, like being pure potentiality and looking at, say, like your grandparents' life and like what evolutions happened in humanity just in that time or oh, our parents time yeah. or in your time in my time like we've seen so much and this evolution is um you know it's getting faster and faster but again it's like we're building on the evolution of the people who came before us like in that creative potential we're recognizing sure. like oh you know i mean how long ago was it that gravity was acknowledged like yeah. Newton, when was that? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. remember the exact date. But like, but, yeah. for the whole existence of humanity yeah. to have, like, within the last two or three hundred years, someone to be like, oh my gosh, there's this thing called yeah. gravity. Like, that's pretty significant. I was thinking when you were talking about the waves and the the particles of the waves, you used a word, I can't remember what it was, where they... Wave function, decohere de de to, to the particle state. Yeah, and, um, I mean... I, I might be off a little in my description here, but I, I believe in my rudimentary physics background, like that's a light. Like we have a photon right. that's a light wave, but a photon right. also means... It had to do with photons. So let's look at this. Okay. Let's go to structural integration. Okay. Let's look at deep solace work. Oh, my favorite. Let's look at going into the solace slowly, mindfully. The psoas is a very deep muscle of your hip flexor. You can deep. access it through your abdominal cavity. So you get you say you get to the psoas, which is considered by many about as deep as you can palpate in the body. And the goal, and oftentimes, not always, the goal is to kind of medialize it because it tends to bow outwards a little bit and fuse a little bit with the iliacus, right? But if you're getting deeper, you feel these little nodules of stress in the muscle, right? You feel it all the time. And it's pretty obvious, and you go, oh, you know, so then you stay there, and that nodule disperses. Yeah. So, look at the, look at the uh, quantum aspect of that. <laughs> you right. know, it's, well, your being of crystalline light form, touching your own skin, <laughs> touching into the skin of this other being like, who's coming up through their light form, girl, their yeah. water crystalline yeah. matrix to say hello to yours, yeah. it's this reciprocity. And then, and, then, whew, it's, and once again, kind of a structural fluidity. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what it's all about? Uh, in terms of, the, you know, working on the fossil system is, uh, you know, realigning the body in the gravitational field to have more efficacy, more ease, more grace, mm -hmm. which means we can move simply and flowingly towards opening, towards potential. 100%. Yeah. Um, okay. We maybe should have another conversation because <laughs> we could go on for a long time. We could this go could on be for like a, a two-hour-long yeah. conversation. We're at about um, fifty minutes here, so I don't want to. Oh, really? Um, okay. Well, what? Yeah, fine. I know that you have plans. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a lunch date. You, you asked me. Are you uh, go on a lunch date with this guy? <laughs> you asked me, and we'll have I know, fun. I yeah. Know. Okay, Stephen. Where can people like?
like learn about you? How did they get to this float conference that you talked about? Like, well, the float, you just look it up, float conference 2022. Uh, and in terms of uh, getting a hold of me, uh, it's it has been extremely difficult. Like Facebook? Uh, uh, Facebook, yeah, I, I am. Uh, I do. I do have. I had a. Uh, have you heard of email? I, I do answer emails, uh, <laughs> and my email address is O L D E, the old English old coyote at gmail dot com. Oh. And uh, I do have. An, uh, I don't even know. I'm not much on computer on computers okay. and social okay. media, but I do have a site on Facebook called Matrical Musings. Okay. And I haven't been there for a long time. And okay. I messed up, I put some stuff in there a long time ago and I keep thinking I'm going to come back and update it. I have a friend who's a tech person that's going to help me. And then I'm going to actually start carrying on conversations on matrical musings. Nice. Yeah. Good. Well, this and conversation should about. probably go with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you so much thank for you. coming and watching. All these beautiful people got to pop on and watch and hear this awesome conversation. I'm, I am so... I love talking to you. I'm going to get Stephen back in here to have more conversations. But again, you can check out Yoga Embodiment Coaching if you want to learn more from me, yogaembodimentcoaching.com. And have an awesome day, everybody. Thanks for Thank listening. You. Thank you. Bye.